Welcome to the All of Life podcast from Redemption Church Tempe, where we have conversations on faith, culture, theology, and beyond to help us live all of life, all for Jesus. Let's jump into today's episode. Welcome to the All of Life podcast, where we believe that all of life is all for Jesus. Uh, my name is Josh Butler, one of the pastors here at Redemption Tempe, and I am stoked. We have AJ Swoboda on the podcast today with us. AJ is a prolific author, one of my favorite authors, uh, and personally just uh, proud to, uh, man, excited to have known him as a friend over the years who shaped my life. Um, we used to pastor together in the same city and kind of got to know each other there. And honestly, AJ, your works have been a huge influence. I mean, you've written a number of great books, but today we're going to be talking about uh, his most recent book, After Doubt. The subtitle is How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. And I think this is a very important conversation because themes of deconstruction and doubt are very live and present. Things that many of us uh, either have friends or family members who are perhaps wrestling with uh, deconstruction or with doubt. Uh, for many of us, this is a part of our own story or journey. I know I've, I've gone through seasons of life really grappling with doubts of the faith. And the question is, and how do we approach or navigate those questions and doubts? Uh, as AJ wisely puts it here, um, how can you question your faith without losing it? And uh, even there was a stat that AJ ha has in here that something like 60% of high schoolers, I believe it is, uh, upon leaving high school will wrestle with uh some form of deconstruction as it relates to the faith that they grew up in, if they grew up in the church. So this is a very important live conversation. AJ, man, stoked to have you on. Just first off, thanks for being here with us, man. Um, I've been called many things, but prolific, that was a first. Thank you. Um, and your audience, <laughs> Maybe I should have said verbose or loquacious or, <laughs> or, or a lot. But... Or over-functioning maybe would be a better word. But your audience should know, and I'm surprised you didn't say this in the intro, Josh, um, we went to high school together and we don't, we went to we the same high school. Yes, we did. We did. Good things come out of Kaiser, Oregon. Good things come out of McNary high, even more so go Celts. Yeah. <laughs> I actually, I was going to mention that at some point in the podcast, waiting to bring that up, but you beat me to the punch, man. Yeah. So uh, AJ and I, even from the same hometown, so good things out of Kaiser, good Oregon. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, you, by virtue of the fact that we do share, um, we, we share some roots, um, you know, in this conversation about doubt and deconstruction, the truth is, um, in those early years when I was in high school, I was actually in 16, I was 16 years old when I became a Christian uh, at McNary High School. Um, and you would have been, I think, a senior when I was a, a junior or something like that. And I became a Christian. And, you know, I, I look back over that year of, of becoming a Christian. It was a very important, obviously, life-changing experience. And Jesus has utterly turned my life upside down. Um, but, you know, all the uh, almost... I, I could say most of the people that I knew and walked with Jesus during those years no longer identify as Christians. Mm. And a lot of the friends that you and I had in high school, yes. who maybe were even people that nurtured our faith, um, are are no longer sort of a part of the community of of, of followers of Jesus. So this this is a very deconstruction doubt conversation probably hits just about all of us on some level in some way, shape or form. Definitely. And I'm wondering maybe if you could speak a little more to yeah some of that backdrop for this book. You mentioned your you know experience coming to faith in high school and a lot of those friends over the years kind of deconstructing and walking away from 
uh, many walking away from Jesus uh, on the other side of that process. Um, but then also, you know, you were, uh, uh, yeah, you've been a pastor in Oregon for a long time. We were kind of in, in Portland together where deconstruction was a live thing. Can you talk a bit about just some of what you saw in the trenches of ministry and people that you were walking with um, that, that kind of led to going, man, this is, this is a conversation I want to step into. It's kind of yeah, you, so, but I'd, yeah, there, and there is a backstory kind of, uh, kind of, um, I don't know, a, a, a bit of a, a backdrop or a, like a, there's a, there's a, there's a human side to this whole story. And, but I also think it's important to say when we talk about deconstruction in particular, um, that as a person in power, you know, I'm an academic, I, I teach in a higher ed institution, Christian school, university, uh, you're a pastor talking about doubt and deconstruction when you, you're somebody in power can actually be really, it, we have to be cautious about the way we do it, um, and do it well and sensitively and gently. I think you and I both have just in trying to talk about this publicly, have both learned, you know, you just gotta be sen- I've gotta be sensitive. I've made many mistakes, but the truth is, um, yeah, I wrote this book because, you know, for 10 years of my life, I was a college pastor for 10 years. I was a, uh, pastor and a church planter in urban Portland, Oregon, and sat in the front row and watched um, people go through this process of um, rethinking what the Christian story looks like in their life. And in many cases, um, that set of questions actually led to a deeper faith, uh, ironically, of, of, of doubting and deconstructing, actually leading to, on some levels, a bigger heart for Jesus. Um, but watching others, as I sat in the front row, uh, ask a series of questions, and it led to an abandonment of faith. And I, so I think, you know, the, the stories that I tell in the book and that I engage with on a day in and day out level, these are real humans. And these are not, you know, fa- these are not facts or numbers. These are humans, family members, people we've pastored, um, people in our, our classes, um, people that we care deeply about. What I have, I think my, the heart of this book is, is it possible to actually question what we believe in such a way that that questioning makes our belief stronger. Hmm. And I'm convinced that if it's done properly leads to a deeper, more fulfilling, nurtured faith. um, And that actually unexamined faith is not faith yet. Yeah. Or, or rather I should say it's, it, it hasn't experienced the fullness that Christ desires it to be. So there's, I think in the New Testament, I think it's like 317 times uh, Jesus uh, asks people questions and something like 167 times Jesus is asked a question, but only three times does Jesus actually give an answer. And I'm, uh, there's a book written by Conrad Gempf, who's a German scholar, wrote a book called Jesus Asked. And I'm convinced the problem is not our questions. Uh, often the posture of our heart is the problem, why we're asking them. And that sometimes we're actually asking the question, not because we genuinely want to know. We're actually asking because um, we want to find a way out of out of our faith or we, we want to be able to do what we want to do. Yeah, dude, that's that's great. Well, maybe by way of uh, just caveat here before we say, you know, jump in even more. Uh, dude, I love how the focus of your book is really, dude, how do we grapple with doubt and questions and things of that nature? Um uh, you also talk about, you know, like this phenomenon of deconstruction that we're seeing. I feel like for many people, that's a kind of a buzzword that's out there. A lot of people know it, maybe have used it, and maybe ambiguously have a sense of what it means, but it gets used by different people in different ways. So I wonder if by way of inroad as well, it might be helpful to even just define, can you define the yeah. term, at least as you're using it uh, for us to kind of help give yes. people some clarity or hooks on what do we mean by the term? 
And it's important that you said, as I define it, because the truth is you can find a thousand sort of descriptions or definitions of deconstruction. Um, but really what, what we're talking about here is we're talking about um, the opposite of building something, but, but beginning to, to tear down or begin to undo. So to construct is to build. You know, when, when, a, when, a, when a person goes to an alpha class and learns about the Christian faith and begins to develop a faith structure, that's construction. Deconstruction is when we begin to question the beliefs that we've already had. So to deconstruct is to question things that we have held on to. And to, the reality is, for many of us, we treat our theology, we don't think about our theology a lot. And we treat our theology the way we think the pipes in our, we think about it, the pipes in our house. Like you don't sit around and think about the pipes in the house. The only moment you start thinking about the pipes in your house is when you have a big flood in your home and you, you have yeah. to start thinking about it. We, meaning we think about it when it stops working. Hmm. And deconstruction is beginning to question things we hold. And the truth is for too many of us, if you go onto Twitter or Instagram or whatnot, it's assumed that all deconstruction is somehow a bad thing, especially among sort of gospel centered people, people that love Jesus, that deconstruction is always bad. And that's, that's actually not helpful because Jesus, for example, deconstructs. Um, when you read the gospel narratives, right? Jesus is teaching uh, uh, on the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, mm. he's, he's comparing what he's saying compared to what the interpreters of the Pharisees and Sadducees taught. And he says mm. things like, you have heard it said, but I say to you, mm. what is Jesus doing? He's deconstructing bad interpretations of the law. Um, Martin Luther. I mean, you can't look at Martin Luther and tell me he wasn't doing some deconstructing. I mean, he, yes. you know, he was undoing some things that he saw to be corrupt and unjust and wrong. So if I'm a Protestant, if I'm an, if I'm an evangelicalish lover of Jesus, I'm a part of a tradition that has value deeply, deconstruction. Mm. But there, there, I think what we're, we're beginning to experience is that there's a difference between kind of a cruciform Christ-centered deconstruction and a destructive abandonment deconstruction. Um, what one, one in which we're doing, we're questioning our faith because we love God with all of our heart, mm. or sometimes we're questioning our faith because really, um, we're tired of having a book tell us how we're supposed to live our lives. Yeah. And we're tired of being yeah. a part of a faith community that tells us a good way to live. Totally. I mean, as you mentioned, both you and I have both gone through seasons of uh, doubt and questions and wrestling with dark nights of the soul. Um, and it does seem and they, like they aren't, they aren't past, yeah. I, yeah. meaning they're not like yeah. 10 years ago. They're now, yeah. like right now. I mean, I, yeah. <laughs> we, we love to, Christian leaders, we love to talk about our doubts when they were a decade ago. There's like a, I don't know, a, a sort of a, we're comfortable with our struggles as long as they were back when we, but I think for many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, struggling with what we believe is a normal part. It's the air we breathe as followers of Jesus. Hmm. Yeah, well, then to your, your point earlier, though, this phenomenon today that, uh, that I'm seeing, it, it seems like, you know, there's this a trajectory that can ultimately lead towards deeper intimacy and union with Christ and life with God on the other side, you know, through uh, the, this process down question. And then there's also kind of a phenomenon that for many uh, seems to lead ultimately away from uh Christ and union with him and life with him. And you talk about kind of these, these different postures. I wonder if you could speak uh, to that. One of the things that you talk about, um, you know, I, I think you have some brilliant, so many brilliant insights, and some of them are on some of the cultural waters that we are swimming in and breathing in. You talk about kind of the the problem of freedom and the way that we tend to yeah. approach and think about freedom in our uh, kind of the waters we're swimming in today. 
maybe could you speak to that a little? Like, what what are some of the things that you see in um, just some of the assumptions that we have as modern twenty first century Americans about the nature of freedom that might play into this conversation? Yeah, I li- I'm a, a I'm like I'm going to guess many of your listeners. I I enjoy listening to NPR. It's been I've been I've been listening to NPR for years. It's a I don't know. I, I to be honest, I think NPR does uh, better. They, they do better like quality production than anybody in the world. I mean, they, they, it's, they, they tell a story in a great way. And when I listen to NPR, um, it is very common when I, when I hear stories of people that used to be Christians, I'll talk about, you know, I was raised in a conservative Christian home, but now I've come to this sort of place I've evolved, you know, I'm at, I've arrived at this place. Now, I think you have to kind of have a certain pair of lenses to catch what's going on there, but there's sort of this inner moment in history there is a sort of social value given to somebody who has rejected their upbringing. Sort of this, the pride of the post, you know, we're post everything. We're post, post-Christian, post-modern, post, you know, everything. We're post-evangelical, we're post everything. The pride of being post something. I've kind of moved beyond it. Right. I've, I've, I've ascended, I've transcended sort of this narrative and I've, evolve now to this. I mean, be underneath that. And part of that is beautiful. I mean, all of us want to, you know, become something, take what we were given and, 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 and grow. And that's beautiful on some levels, but the underneath that is a whole set of philosophical assumptions around the nature of the good life. And it turns out at our moment in history, we, we have gotten to the place where everything is about transcending the past, moving beyond the past. Now, when we compare our kind of progressive, secular, Western way of life to the time of Jesus, it was the complete opposite, right? In Jesus's time, it was an honor culture, which is the, a phrase mm-hmm. that Thomas Berger used to sociologists. And Berger talks about honor cultures as places that protect and preserve the past. Mm-hmm. So everything becomes about protecting the traditions, protecting the past, which is why Jesus said things like, a prophet has no honor for the hometown. When the prophet would seek to say something new, the hometown would reject the prophet to preserve the past. So in, in the first century, an honor culture, the prophet has no honor in his hometown. But in our movement, in our moment, the prophet now has total disdain and no honor for their hometown. Huh. We, we reject where we come from. And we have truth in our hands, but we reject the past. And that's a cultural value of ours that is, I would contend, extraordinarily dangerous for the Christian faith. I mean, when you read the biblical narrative, how much are we told to remember? To, 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 how much are we, we told to have memory of God, to not forget God, to preserve the wisdom of, of our foremothers and forefathers? Mm. And it's, to be a Christian now is actually, we're at a bit of tension now because everything is about abandoning the past. But we're a people that are rooted in the past. Um, and so right now, we're, everything's about transcending, leaving the past. And I would contend, actually, this is, if there's a moment in history, for us to be a people rooted in history, it's right now. Wow. So, but there's a tension there, right? You know, I was always, I'm raised somewhere, but I've transcended it. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if that's, that. if everything is about abandoning the past, then all of our children are going to hate us. I mean, we're setting ourselves up to be hated by everybody in the future. Wow. Yeah, you talk about this, related to that, seems to be this tension between honoring and leaving. Uh, and, yeah. 
and how that can play into like what posture we approach our doubts and questions it with. What would you say? What what are kind of the pitfalls? Even I, I think like you're saying culturally, it seems like the emphasis is very much on leaving, transcending, moving beyond, becoming post rather than honoring. Uh, but then even as you describe kind of honoring and leaving, I feel kind of the tug of both of those internally within myself yep. as it relates yep. to kind of doubts and questions. How would you relate that maybe to the, the internal pressures on the heart as you're going, how do I, how do I navigate my doubts and questions? Yeah. That tension between um, honoring I am the, those two words, honoring and leaving um, that, that I, I write a whole chapter about honoring and leaving. Those are biblical categories, right? We're told mm -hmm. uh, in the, in the Decalogue, the 10 commandments, Honor your mother and your father. And we are simultaneously told the story of Abraham, who's told to leave his family's household. Hmm. There's these two leaving. What is Jesus always telling people to do? Leave your families, leave your nets, leave your occupations. Hmm. Honoring and leaving those two tensions. We're called to both of those to, hmm. to leave and, and follow God, but honor what God has done. Hmm. Um, those two things, that is what a weird, I mean, to live both of those things at the same time is a very uh, awkward posture, right? Um, so how do we do it? Well, I, I can tell you, you know, for 10 years, Josh, you and I lived in Portland together for a, a good chunk of time. We had the chance to go on a, an incredible trip to Rome together. Um, you you can speak to this as much as I can. Um, but I, I constantly feel this pressure to need to abandon what Christians have always said to embrace what our culture is currently saying. I'm constantly feeling this tension to, Im, Im, to leave behind what Christians have for 2000 years brought as a witness and embrace what, what I see happening on Twitter today because it's the 21st century. And I think the danger in that, C.S. Lewis had a way of describing that. We always assume every moment in history always thinks that they are the most evolved moment in history. And he calls it chronological snobbery, the arrogance of thinking you've arrived right here and now. And to be, I think to be a Christian is to root what is true and real and good, not in what, what we are saying now, but in, in the eternal voice of, of Christ. That, that's a radical posture to take. When you're feeling swirling around you, all sorts of pressures to abandon. I mean, we talk about we can talk about sexuality and gender. I'm teaching a class on sexuality and gender in the Bible, and, and if you want to talk about the pressures one feels to chuck the past for the future, uh, I, I'm I, I can tell you I feel those pressures. <laughs> but the minute we begin to make theological decisions based on our moment in history, just because we're at that moment in history, that's a dangerous posture. When we yeah, begin to make theological decisions based on our emotions, that's a dangerous posture. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk there about, you know, in, in that kind of context about the temptation of editing the Bible, you know, kind of, uh, and often what can be driving that process that we might even not even be paying attention to is some of the cultural pressure, th things that we're feeling at the time. Can you talk about that? What are, what are some of the dangers of, um, the temptations in editing the Bible and the dangers of not recognizing our own cultural location. Often yeah. like, you know, I think of you and I here as 21st century Americans in, you know, like the, the context that we're in, not, not recognizing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so. Well, I mean, I mean, it's, a, it's a lot of the, a lot of the, the challenges that I see, at least in my academic environment is 
that my students struggle to understand the story of the Bible, Jesus, the, the Christian story, largely because of what my counselor calls projection. So <laughs> what, is, what is projection? Projection is when I see upon somebody else something that's really in me. And, I, and I'm a master at this. My wife, Quinn, would tell you. Uh, <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm really great in identifying problems in her that really are, are my thing. So let me, so you could call, I'll put it this way. So what it gets in the way, I would call it theological projection. So I'm sitting, for example, I'm sitting in my office now and I have an, a couch in my office. And my, when my students come in for office hours, it's, it's a, I love office hours because students, I'm not their pastor. They just get to actually say what they think and their grade won't be affected. So I'm sitting with a young woman. This is last year. And she's, we're talking about, uh, 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 I had done a, a lecture on the Bible and, and sexuality. And she says to me, um, so I, she goes, I, I, you know, I used to think the way you do. I'm, I'm fairly, very conservative when it comes to sexuality. She goes, I used to think the way you do, but I've really, I've really, I think God has changed. And I said to her, I said, what do you mean you think God has changed? She says, well, when I read the Bible, I think God thought one thing then, but now I think he's sort of, you know, he's transcended and he's evolved and he sort of opened up what he thinks. And I said, I just said it out loud. I don't, I don't know if I offended her. She's, <laughs> I may have, I, I, she goes, I think God has evolved. And I said, wait a second, did God evolve or did you evolve? Hmm. And immediately I could tell by the look on the face, she understood kind of what I was getting at. I didn't even know what I was saying when I said it, but I thought about it afterwards. And I knew I, there was sort of this Freudian response. She, it's not that God has changed. She has changed. And she needs God to follow what she thinks. Hmm. And Josh, I got to tell you, I do that all the time to God. Hmm. I change and project upon God what I think he should be. And I'm, I'm just simply convinced that being a Christian is not getting God to come where we are. It is abandoning where we are to go to where God is. Mm. And that's a, listen, God does come to us. The incarnation is fully God coming to us. But in coming to us, he doesn't abandon who he is. God, God does come to us, but he doesn't come to us and leave behind who he is. He comes to us as he fully is. And I'm, I don't know. I'm, here's my point. I think we do a lot of projection. <laughs> And we, we don't love God for who God is. We love God for who we want him to be. Hmm. That's, that's great. How, how is your, you talk a bit about how your exposure to the global body of Christ and just yeah. you know, the international yeah. brothers and sisters, <laughs> how that has sometimes uh, kind of exposed or revealed some of those projections or cultural blinders or way, you know, yes. ways that you just assume this is the way it is. And then you kind of yeah. are encountering the broader body of Christ and going, whoa, maybe it's me who's the problem. You know, like, yeah. yeah. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about that, that experience? Yeah. Yeah. The, the sexuality conversation, again, we'll just keep, I'm using that as sort of a template for this conversation because I, I mean, it is for a lot of people, one of the reasons they're deconstructing. Um, yeah. Based on my Facebook timeline, um, which is filled with predominantly people that live in America, Western, you know, white people predominantly um, who tend to, to be more, just my timeline by virtue of where I've lived, tend to be more progressive. Um, you would think that um, you would think that 
um, to embrace what the Bible has to say about sexuality means that you are uh, a hater or closed-minded or bigoted, and that that's on par with some sort of racism or bigotry or sexism or something like that. <laughs> when, when, when you when you spend time with communities of color that love Jesus, they they by and large continue to believe what the Bible has to say about sexuality. And when I'm here's what I'm trying to say: when I'm exposed to less affluent white communities of people that love Jesus, they are radically more committed to the Bible's sexual ethic than most white Christians are. And that it actually, it confronts, it confronts my notion that being white means I'm right. If I'm a Christian, I embrace the voice of the Spirit in the entire church, not just the community that's on my timeline. And to be a Christian is to be confronted by the fact that I don't get to bend the church's teaching on something because of my moment in history as a white guy in America. I am called to a broader movement that, by the way, Christian orthodoxy was broadly penned by people of color. You look at people like Athanasius, who they called, you know, the uh, uh, he, he, was a, he was an African and uh, was in the room writing the early Christian documents on Christian orthodoxy. For me to just chuck that because it doesn't fit my narrative, that's ethnocentricity. That's me chucking the voices of people of color in history for the sake of what I, I want to believe right now. I guess what I'm trying to say is yeah. um, if you start changing what Christianity says to fit your moment in time, we have a word for that. It's called colonialism. Hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm totally. called, I, I'm called to believe in the, the global church, not that not just the church that's in my neighborhood. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, maybe to, I don't want to overly generalize, but there is a general sense that much of it's often coming from an affluent, predominantly white sector of society that is very hesitant about, uh, you know, that cares a lot about, you know, like, um, well, it's often from a more affluent white sector of American society that wants to redact the Bible, that wants to kind yes. of de deconstruct it to fit kind of modern cultural notions. But in so doing, there's an irony that it's often the voices of the poor and communities of color that have shaped you know that god has moved and worked through by his spirit that are being deconstructed and redacted in order yes. to fit you know like and, yes. and so the, yeah there's a deep thick irony there you know like the, the yeah. Yeah. yeah the the bible was penned i mean i i get pushed back on this and have been pushed back on a, a few times um and there, i understand the, the the critique but the bible was written by poor people of color now somebody could say well David, you're not going to tell me David and Solomon were poor people of color. I understand they were quite affluent, but but just we got to remember the Bible was penned by, yeah, some people in power, but majority are people that have been ostracized, marginalized, and these are not white Europeans who are writing the Bible. I mean, if you're a Christian, your sacred text is written by a group of people from a completely different cultural moment in history who have things to say to you that should offend your white progressive Western values. They should. And to just undo those parts of the Bible that we don't like because they don't fit, how is that not colonialism? 
I mean, <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally, dude. Totally, it's dude. ironic. Yeah. It's so yeah. ironic. There's a line in uh, James Cone is a was a was a an incredible African African American uh, theologian who wrote uh, a number of books, The Cross and the Lynching Tree. These incredible books. Yes. He has a line in one of his books where he says, and "I'm going to I'm going to use a word that may offend some of your, but it's James Cone, so I'm allowed to say." He says, "When white people get in a room and do theology together." They love to bend what the Bible has said to their cultural moment. And he has a word for it. He calls it theological masturbation. Hmm. Is, hmm. is changing the Bible to fit what we want it to be. And hmm. all of us in human history have done this. But in our moment yeah. in history, the arrogance to just chuck what the Bible says because it doesn't fit what we think, it, it is yeah. the it's utter, utter arrogance. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a, it, it, while a loaded term, I think it's appropriate. You know, that you're seeking essence to, yeah, the pleasuring of yourself by yep. manipulating God's word rather than yep. actually engaging it on its own terms. Yeah, yep. Yep. yeah, that, man. That's, yeah. We don't get to we don't get to name that and say this is all a bunch of other people that are doing it. I do that all the time. I mean, I, to be confronted by Jesus is for me to recognize and name my own complicity in being hmm. an ethnocentric guy. I do it all the time. And, and the, it, by God's grace, we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to the ways in which we are reshaping the Bible around what we want it to say. I'm called, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not reformed. I'm not a Calvinist, but D.A. Carson has a, a line that he always uh, uses when he talks about that. He says, I am called to meet and love the God who is not the God I want. Hmm. Hmm, the God who is, not the God I want. That's so good. And again, coming back to your big idea, how to question your faith without losing it, I do feel like that speaks to a posture of going, man, I don't just want the answers. Like, I want God. You know, like, like yeah. what I need is, man, and, and the hunger for God's actual presence being the solution. You know, like, like, Man, and one of the things you talk about in the midst of I love is, is kind of a theological impatience that we can have at times of like, dude, I want all my, I, no. I can feel this at times in my own heart. Like I want my answers now. I need my things now. And like you know, a lot of the biggest epiphanies and insights for me over the years have come over a season or even years at times of grappling and wrestling with stuff. Yep. And, and the epiphanies come downstream out the other side. Well, yeah. um, almost that Jacob wrestling with God kind of image, you know, and, and yet your name has changed in the process. Um, yeah, could you speak to that kind of like our, our theological impatience at times and the, yeah, I mean, we're, um, we're trained, uh, we're trained. Um, I mean, we're, it's a habit. It's a, it's become, we've been discipled into a way of life that says we're one click away from getting what we want. And essentially, you know, I can, I can one click a pizza to my office here in 20 minutes. I can download uh, Skeletons in God's Closet on my computer in a, in a five-second period. <laughs> I, could, I could get anything I want in a click. And we, we should not be so full of ourselves to think that that does not translate over into the way we do theology. That, we th that when we have a question about God, that we can one-click it. And the, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll say the worst place in the world to take your theological questions uh, is to the to the internet. I mean that that is the dumbest place. It's just something is lost when we no longer get into a room with people and struggle and wrestle together 
with what following Jesus means. And when I replace, and I, I'm a, I host a podcast, but when I replace God's people, the body and the blood, the Eucharist, when I replace the worship of God with a podcast, something is drastically lost. We are trying to create immediate responses to questions that should often take 30 or 40 years. Yeah. Um, yeah. The greatest questions, the greatest questions, the greatest questions deserve the longest time. And when mm -hmm. we wrestle, um, I mean, when we wrestle with questions that we lose sleep over and we take years to do it, how does that not make you a deep person? Yeah. Shallow answers make shallow people, but deep mm -hmm. people take deep time. And yes. for us to just chuck something because it doesn't make sense to us? No, it's a mystery. Mystery takes a take a life. It's like the Bi the Bible. Here you go. This is a the Bible is a never never never. It's an everlasting gobstopper. Hmm. The, the more the more you suck, the more you chew, the more there is, and it takes a <laughs> lifetime. This book deserves a lifetime to wrestle with. That's good. Yeah, man. You mentioned uh, the skeleton's God's closet, but I, you know, in, in the process of, of writing that, one of the things that strikes me as you're talking is like, dude, it's not like I had this question and then I found this thing. And then this, a lot of that came over 15 years, you know, like there was 15 years of grappling with some of the topics that, that are in there. And, and there, there wasn't the, and, and I just, this morning was in scripture, kind of learning something new that I'd never seen before. You know, and like, dude, I, I think the the gobstopper is real. <laughs> like, dude, it, it takes it time to, uh, yeah, and to actually anticipate that, man, this is going to be a, a long process of formation. Uh, yeah. I love them. Yeah, well, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, when the, when the New Testament letters were written, you know, those letters would have taken a long time to get where they were going. And, and these early Christians yeah. were wrestling with great questions. I just love that the letters took a long time to write and they got there really slow. Something is lost when we need immediate theological responses. Something is lost when we don't uh, go the way of wisdom, which is slowing down and inviting Christ to be our co-labor in the process of learning about, about God. So good. Well, I want one last question. I want to honor your time, respect your time, uh, but uh, maybe the last question, you kind of were, were going this direction. Um, could you speak to the role of the church in this process? Often as people are grappling with these things, um, yeah, trying to navigate, man, what is my relationship with the people of God look like? And you talk about the importance of that tribe, that community, and even maybe the temptation for like, dude, some ways mimosas on Sundays feels easier than uh, talk about, man, what is the, the significance um, of Christ-centered community, the body of Christ it, it, in the season of grappling with doubt and questions? Well, it, it would have been uh, until, you know, <laughs> it would have been until 2004 when our iPhones were invented. It would have been that when we have those questions, we go to church. I mean, that, that would have been, yeah, we could read books and go to the library or whatnot. But I mean, the way Christians have been doing this for 2000 years, if you, you I mean, obviously if you count the, the history of Israel and God's people in the old Testament, the way you deal with your questions is you go, you go to God's people and we've replaced the church with YouTube clips. Um, and, and podcasts and we've replaced the church with, and there's a reason why for a lot of us churches have not been places where we've been allowed to bring our questions. 
And so that's what we've been forced to do is we've been forced to go to the internet. But here's what, here's what I, here's what I think, at least this is my two cents. Um, number one, we need leaders who are differentiated enough to not be offended by questions and to not freak out when people in our church have questions. So leaders that, that can contain people's questions and don't personalize it, make it, oh, is it about me? That we, that we make space for it. But secondarily, um, we, need, we need people to, to drive themselves to go back to God's people over and over and over again. And this is this Thomas story in John 20, right? Uh, Jesus resurrects and Thomas is having a hard time believing. And the text says that for a whole week, Jesus does not show him his scars. And I just love that for a whole week, the believing disciples who believed the resurrection and seen the resurrection make space for Thomas in their community. They make space for him for a whole week. But I love even more the fact that he remains a part of the community, even though he's doubting. Hmm. He doesn't run away. And thank God he did, because Thomas goes on to become the first missionary to go to India. And if you've ever met a Christian from India with the last name Thomas, there's a reason they have a last name Thomas. Because the doubter becomes the missionary when they're faithful to the community and they continue to be part of it. So mm, here's man. what we need. We need leaders who are at peace with people asking questions. And we need people who continue to bring themselves back to the community of belief, even when they struggle to believe. Mm, that's so good. And that's such a good word to end on, too. I love that picture of Thomas and the the doubter becoming the missionary. That It feels like this, this window or this picture of, what you kind of open with the idea that man grappling with some of these tough questions and doubts when done with, you know, kind of this posture of God, I want to know you deeper and some of the themes that you've hit on um, that these can actually be rather than an impediment to our faith can actually be uh, the context in which our faith goes deeper and our experience with Christ goes deeper in the long run, even if it's through kind of a dark night of the soul or a tough valley that, that there can be a deeper encounter with Christ. Bingo. The process. Yeah. I did a, I did a thing. Um, I'll close with this. I did a, yeah. uh, just a couple, um, a couple years ago, a friend of mine told me, write down on a piece of paper, all of the spiritual Christian heroes that have been your biggest heroes. And I wrote them all down. C.S. Lewis, um, pe- people like Flannery O'Connor, um, Henry Nouwen, um, you know, the, these, uh, Brennan Manning, these sorts of people. I wrote them all down and I sat there with this piece of paper and I asked, "What? Why? Why have these people been so influential for me?" And it dawned on me as I was looking at the sheet of paper, they all have one thing in common. Hmm. All of them had something in their life that was never resolved. Hmm. C.S. Lewis bouts of depression and sadness. His wife dies of cancer. Um, Flannery O'Connor dies of lupus at like 33. She only writes a few books. She doesn't get to live the prolific life she should. Henry Nouwen struggles with his sexuality his entire adult life. Uh, Brendan Manning never gets clean from alcohol. Hmm. All these people have inspired me because they're people who never fully arrive. Hmm. And I would say scars are the sign that you're on the journey, but you haven't, you haven't, you, there, I don't know what it is. There's something about Christians who haven't fully made it yet, but they haven't given up. Hmm. And that. Those are the people that have spoken the most to me, that make me want to tr- push on to follow Christ to glory. Amen. That's so good, man. That's a great word to 
land on. Well, AJ, man, thank you so much for making time to be with us. And dude, I'm so grateful for you. Uh, for folks who are interested in digging in more, I want to highly encourage uh, folks listening. AJ's book, After Doubt, How to Question Your Faith Without Losing It. And more than that, all of his books are gold, man. So I, a, a glorious dark. Um, uh, if people want to find out more about you and your work and your stuff, AJ, where can they go? I don't know. Twitter, yeah, whatever. Twitter. Just my books are helpful. I, I hate the internet. So don't go there to find me. Get a book of mine, <laughs> read it, and uh, I hope it's helpful. Yes. Yeah. We'll start with After Doubt. It's his most recent. It's a great one. And uh, and then go from, you'll get hooked. And that's the gateway drug. You'll go from there. To I love you, Josh. I miss you. <laughs> AJ, I miss you too, man. Have a great day. Thanks so much again. And to all of you listening, uh, man, God bless. Grateful for God bless. Grace uh, and peace. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to this episode of the All of Life podcast. To get more information on Redemption Church Tempe, you can download the Redemption Tempe app or you can send an email to tempe at redemptionaz.com. 